you know what we're going to be doing? We're going to be spending the next two weeks in a book that was originally Ezra and Nehemiah. Did you know that? The book Nehemiah and Ezra used to be one book, and the Nehemiah part are the memoirs. The first seven chapters of the book of Nehemiah are the memoirs. I'm not even saying that right. Memoirs of Nehemiah himself. So we're going to be talking about that, but first I wanted to tell you just a little bit about about this experience of needing to follow Carrie in preaching. I mean, who wants to do that? Is there any volunteer that wants to come up here and preach after Carrie's preached? And I've been thinking about that all week. In fact, I, I did not know until 8.35 last night when I heard from Carrie in a phone call, and Carrie and Melissa were on the other line, and I was uh, with Jeremy at the Galaxy game holding the phone the whole time because you couldn't hear the phone just to see if it would ring. And it was, what, 11.35 their time at night, so I was starting to panic a little bit because I did expect to hear from him. And that's when I heard the word, and we were very, very excited. But following Carrie in preaching is, is, uh, is, is quite a challenge indeed. But then I began to think back to a number of years ago when I was asked to go to the island of Jamaica as a younger pastor and preach a series of messages. So I was going to preach on a Saturday or Sunday morning, Sunday evening, every night of the week, and another Sunday morning and Sunday evening. Ten messages, and I had been spending months preparing them on the life of David. I was ready to go, and I landed in Kingston, Jamaica. Now, up until that time, I wasn't exactly a world traveler. I grew up in western Pennsylvania in the North Hills of Pittsburgh, and a big trip for me was, well, I actually as a youth went to the Canadian side of the falls. Yes, I went that far. But that was about it to that point in my life. And so we landed in Kingston, Jamaica, and he picks me up in the very first Toyota ever ever made. It was a tiny little Toyota. I don't know if it was literally the first, but it looked like the first. And it didn't have brakes, but it had a horn, and that's what they used. And so they drove us across uh, Jamaica, across Mondeville. Mondeville is in the center of the island of Jamaica, and that's the mountainous country, and back down to the terrible, terrible assignment I had. And that assignment was, are you ready for this, in Montego Bay. Yes, I had to suffer for Jesus in Montego Bay speaking. So we landed that evening, and Pastor Sawyers was the pastor of the church. The president of the church picked me up, and it turns out that Pastor Sawyers did not want me there. How do you like that? You know, I, I'm not exactly a world traveler. I find myself in Jamaica, first time out of the country, well, except for the Canadian side of the falls. And here we are, and he's sitting there, and I could tell he was kind of steaming that he had to receive this assignment of having this young guy come to preach. Well, I was young once. And so he looks at me across the room, across that large living room, and he says, tell me, man, how long you preach? And I'm thinking, I don't know, I've been preaching um, probably about 10, 12, 14 years, something like that. He says, no, man, that's not what I'm asking you. I'm asking you this, how long is your sermon? And my mind's starting to spin, and I said, I don't know, maybe 30 minutes, 25, 30 minutes. He says, no, man, it's like we say here, what can a man say in less than an hour? Nothing, nothing at all. I'm scared to death. I'm in another country. I have 10 messages ready to go. It's 1130 at night, and the first message was going to be in the morning at 10 o'clock. 
Well, it was scheduled for 10 o'clock, but I found out Jamaicans got there at noon. So I found out Jamaicans even get late, they're later to church than Californians are. So there I am, panicked. I can't, have you ever been so scared of something? You can't, you're trying to say something, but you can't. You know what I mean? Right? So that's how I'm feeling. And then what does he do but says to me this. You know you know who the last man to come and preach at the Hopewell Church. You know who that was. Billy. Billy Graham. <laughs> it was true. There's a place that Billy Graham stayed, and when he stayed there, they would invite him to speak at the Hopewell Church, and I was the next guy in. So, Carrie Bowman, if you're listening to this later, huh, you're not such a hard act to follow. <laughs> I followed Billy Graham. Nehemiah is one of the most incredible men in the Old Testament, and there are a lot of incredible men in the Old Testament. Now, I had, I've got to tell you, I had two sermons prepared for today. Debbie, isn't that true? <laughs> I labored over this message. I really labored over this message. What am I going to say? Because if the announcement was from Carrie, hey, you know, God is just not directing us there, I'm like, oh, great. <laughs> I'd rather preach after Billy Graham than even get up in front. In fact, I told Steve Riley, you'll be preaching if I get that call. And I was going to disappear. And so I had that message that I was working on, and then I had the message that I was working on here. Now, what I'm going to do is you have, you have a little uh, folded vertical piece of paper here. I'm preaching this message, yes, but not exactly as you have it here. And there are some fill-in-the-blanks, and some of you are in small groups, and you're going to be looking at these in small groups or community, community groups. So I'm going to fill in the blanks right now. Because I know some of you, if you leave here and the blanks aren't filled up, you're like, you know, some sort of a nervous tension or whatever it is. So I will tell you, and you'll hear these terms as we go through it, but I don't want to be dependent on this piece of paper. Because frankly, what I'm sharing with you this morning, and I did the first service, is something that we always want to be dependent on when we preach. I've got a lot of things prepared, but I just want to hear from God. And I want to be able to share with you what God is speaking into my life and about the next steps for this church and this body of Christ moving forward. The first one, it, I put it as a principle, but I think it's really an admonition where it says he has a burden for you. The, the blank is pursue God. That will come into clarity, into focus as we go through the message. But it's pursue God. The second one on the next sheet, next side, it says this will daily invigorate your life. It's align with God. This will daily invigorate your life. And the third one where it says you are not alone in your burden, it says ask for help. You are not alone in your burden. And then the last one, principle number four, uh, you will find others who share your vision. Recruit to your vision. Recruit to your vision. Because you'll find others that share your vision and your burden. The text. 
Nehemiah out of the first chapter. Let me give you a little bit of background. 92 years earlier, the first king of Persia is known as Cyrus. Starts with a C. He was the very first king. It's an interesting thing because the people there in Babylon and Babylonia, that whole area, were the very people that took the people of Israel and took them and destroyed the city walls and destroyed, burned the gates and led them off into captivity. It's known as the Babylonian captivity. And now somebody from that part of the world, Cyrus, who was now the first king of Persia, is the very one that sends Ezra. Now Ezra preceded Nehemiah in going back to Jerusalem, but what for? Ezra was sent back to rebuild the temple. Isn't it interesting that the very people that carried them into captivity, God leverages to turn it all around, that these are the people that begin to pull the people of Israel back together again in Jerusalem. All right, but the, the temple was being rebuilt, but the walls and the gates were still destroyed. The book of Nehemiah is much about the rebuilding of these walls and these gates. You get the picture? So Nehemiah comes along later, than, 92 years later than Ezra in this original piece, or at least the, the affirmation by Syria, Cyrus that it would be rebuilt. We listen here to the beginning of the book of Nehemiah, and it says in chapter 1, and some of these are in your notes and some are not. Uh, next week it would be good because we're building on this, uh, if you have your Bible, go ahead and bring it, because who knows where I may go? No. Well, the Lord knows. In the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakali, in the month of Kislev, now that's October, or that's November, December, if you're wondering. That's the month, month of Kislev. In the 20th year, what's the 20th year? It's the 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes. We will find out that Nehemiah is the cupbearer to this Artaxerxes. So now it's 20 years into the reign of this man. While I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, so Hanani has a brother. He came from Judah. Judah is where Jerusalem is at. With some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. So you get the picture of what's going on to this point? He's asking from some people that came back, in particular his brother, what's it like back there in Jerusalem? Now, Nehemiah was not of the generation that was carted off to Babylon. Okay, He's a couple of generations later than that particular event, a number of generations later. And so he's wondering, what's it like? Now, I heard things are torn down, but what's it really like back there? You were just there. And he says, they said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province while they are in great trouble and they are in disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire, which is how things are normally burned. But it's very, very specific. Burned with fire. When I heard these things,
I sat down. Have you ever had news that is so distressing that all you can do is just collapse? I imagine everybody in the room knows exactly what I'm talking about. Something that was so hard to handle. I'm not trying to just take you back there, except for just a moment. I don't want to keep you there. But I want you to think think about that. That's what hit Nehemiah, though he's generations later than the actual event of the collapsing and the destruction of the walls and the gates, and he collapses when he hears it. It hit him. You know what hit him? A burden. A burden. Hilary Swank was in a little movie uh, called The Freedom Writers. It's a book first. Has anyone read Freedom Writers? Anybody? Have you heard of it? Oh, you, you've got to get it. What it is, It's she was a school teacher in the movie as it's portrayed, and that's the name of it, The Freedom Writers. It's a great, another great little red box. I'm always giving you a little red box thing, right, to, to go and grab. She is a teacher in Long Beach, just graduated from college, takes a teaching assignment, and where she has the assignment is in an area that's just gang-ridden, overridden <laughs> by gangs. Very, very tough school to teach in. Tough assignment, and she's so discouraged. Things are not going well, and her, her dad in the movie, portrayed by Scott Glenn, who was in, like, Tombstone and Hunt for Red October and some of those. I don't know if you can get a picture in your mind, but Scott Glenn is her father, and he's sitting in the living room with her, and she wanted to quit. She just said, I've quit. I can't do this. I can't do this. It's it's hurting my marriage. It's hurting every part of my life. The kids don't listen to me. They won't respond. Nothing's working. And he says to her, and I remember this. This is a key phrase that I remembered from that, that movie. He said, you can't quit because you've been blessed with a burden. Now, that's a strange ambiguity, isn't it? Blessed with a burden? I mean, when I think of burdens, I don't think of blessing. Anybody here? You you know what I'm saying? You don't think of blessings, do you? But you've been blessed with a burden. Nehemiah was absolutely blessed with a burden when he sat down and he wept. And the scripture says, and for a number of days, he mourned, he fasted, and he prayed. You see how he reacted to the burden? He pursued the burden. He wept over it. For a number of days, he mourned over it. He fasted over it. He prayed over it. That's being blessed with the burden and pursuing the burden. Now, I don't know what burden God has made, perhaps put on your life, to serve the kingdom. A lot of people have a burden put on them before they ever walk into a relationship with God. Which, oh, by the way, is a great indicator that the work of God and the work of the Holy Spirit begins on our lives before we step across the line and decide to come under the blood and the covering of Jesus Christ. Have you experienced that? Even before you've done that? Or maybe right now you're here today and you're saying, you know what, I haven't stepped over that line. 
don't leave. <laughs> we want you here. We've all been there. And God has laid a particular burden for particular people on you. I was thinking of, uh, I was talking to our pastors down in Existence Church is the name of it. And it's uh, in Miramar, right on, it's on the street immediately on the north end of the Navy Air Base and uh, of Miramar itself. And they have a ministry that is really growing in their church, and it's to um, sex trafficking. I don't know if you're aware, but in San Diego, sex trafficking is a huge problem. It's one of the leading, uh, leading is a terrible word to use, one of the counties where it's happening more than most places across the nation. They have a burden for that. They have some people in their church with a burden for that. And they've recruited people to that cause. That's kind of what I'm writing here in this. They pulled people together to say, we've got to do something to reach as many women as we possibly can and young girls to free them, to help them escape all of the possibilities that burden. That's the kind of burden. It may not be as something as, as hardcore as that particular burden may be another. You know, I, I think of, uh, I've got a friend here that's been, just come came last week, Jonathan in the back. And uh, hi, Jonathan, how you doing? And Jonathan and Liz, and he, he has a burden for uh, young skaters. In fact, uh, Glory Skateboards was your your deal, and he developed a ministry to reach skaters and their families. It's a burden. You, you understand what I'm saying? What what crosses your path where there is a burden that's put on your life? Now, I say all that because I want you to catch the intensity of what's going on with Nehemiah. But not only does he look to God to search for a burden, but what does he do next? He aligns himself with God so that he can do something about the burden. Here's the point. Here's one thing I know for sure. Whenever I get up to speak in front of a group of people, you know what I bring? Well, I'll tell you, I got nothing. I bring nothing. Any burden that I have to share God's word with anyone comes from his word and from him and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the most important thing I can ever do is be sure that I'm emptied out. Does that make sense to you? I'm only saying that not, not about myself, but I am saying that for you. The most important thing you can do when God puts a burden on your life is to empty yourself. So that why? So that there is room for the Spirit of God to fill you and then for Him to work. That is the only opportunity for success. Oh, you might have success on the surface, but when it's built by your success and your gifts, and some of you are really gifted, it will fail. It'll go to dust. It will dissolve. But when it's built on God, that's why he picked, like, you know, Gideon says, you can't pick me. I'm the least of the worst family. And God says, exactly. By the way, that should be a message of hope for you. If you're feeling like, you know what, I'm kind of the least of the worst family, then join Gideon and join so many others throughout the scripture. He doesn't pick the heroes. 
He makes heroes. So, what's he do? After um, he prayed before the God of heaven, it, well, it says, when I, when, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept for a number of days. This is verse 4. I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then, I circled it in my Bible, I said, when did he go to prayer to align himself and do all that? After he gets before God, he does this prayer. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer. Did you catch that? Let your eyes be open to hear. Did you catch that? Let your eyes be open to hear. I, isn't that, is that curious? Is it, does that, you know, stroke your curiosity at all for your eyes to be open to hear? Here's the bottom line of that. A whole lot of people listen. But there is a much deeper level when you come to the point of hearing. It's not the same thing. Coming to church today and listening to a, a guy give a message is listening. Now, I'm not responsible for whether or not you hear. You are. So I'm giving you opportunity and permission to not hear me. I'm giving you the opportunity and the admonition to hear this word. What a marvelous word it is. O Lord God of heaven, he prays. The great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. So what's he do first? We talked about a number of weeks ago. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what he does. He takes the model prayer of Jesus. Uh, by the way, Jesus is eternal. So this this is a prayer <laughs> that is modeled before. And the origin of the prayer is God himself in modeling his prayer and how you pray. So first you acknowledge who he is and all of his power. And that's a bit of, of a self-death. You know, it's a, a bit of saying, I've got nothing to bring to the party, but you do because of your mighty hand and your mighty works and who you are and your personality, all of those things. I confess, this is the next part of the prayer. It's called the confession. I know that because it says, I confess. I pick up on things like that really quick. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, the laws that you gave your servant Moses. He's going back to why they were led out of and captives out of Jerusalem to the first place. We sinned against you. We did not honor you. We have forgotten you. And because of that, you have carried us off. 
We get that. I get that, Lord God. And I want to confess that before you right now. By the way, that's a great place to start when you have a burden to start right there. Let's clean out the vessel. Let's allow the Spirit of God to clean out the vessel so that whatever the product is that comes as a result of your serving Him is worth something. All right. And then he goes next to the plea. He moves from the acknowledgement of God to the confession, now to the plea. Listen to the plea. Now remember the instruction you gave your servant. It's verse 8, Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But, it's after the word but, where people tell what they really mean. All right? And when your kids are being punished, you're talking about the punishment, or you're talking about all these things. All the kids are listening for is after the word but, because that's where all the meaningful stuff really starts to happen. You get it? That's where they know the recompense. That's where they know what's going to really happen. Okay, you know what I'm talking about. You remember that as a kid, don't you? But if you return to me and open my, and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizons, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. What is he doing? He's reminding God of what God has promised. Do you think it's because he thinks God forgot? No, it's because he can boldly, we can boldly go to the throne of grace, the New Testament tells us. We can go and actually share with God, I know this is in your intentional will, big will, big picture. Now, God has providential will where he can change and move things around. He has a big will. The big will is to bring them back together as a place where the Messiah would actually be born out of these people. That's his big will. He's reminding him of that. And now he's saying providentially, in the provision of all of this, here's what I'm asking you. You've said you'll do this, and because of your name that I just declared, I'm confident you will do this. Do you see what's going on in his prayer? All right. I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants, verse 10, and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength, and your mighty hand, that redeem is backward-looking and forward-looking. The redeemed, the primary redeemed piece that the people of Israel looked at was the Passover and the delivery, the redemption out of Egypt. The forward-looking, the prophetic word of Nehemiah here is looking to the Christ, the Redeemer, who will deliver you that's your character, God. You redeemed us before. You'll redeem us again. And if you're sitting here thinking and considering, should I step across that line of redemption? Or do I need to renew my step? It's not that you have to do it over and over, but I need to renew my commitment to God, that he is the redeemer. You know what redemption means? It means it takes something that's not of a particular worth or whatever, and you get to trade it in for something awesome. 
That's a pretty good deal. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayers of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Who is this man? This man is Artaxerxes. That's where we started talking this morning. Who is Artaxerxes? He's the king. He's been king for 20 years. What does Nehemiah do for Artaxerxes? This is a, te- this is a pop quiz because we talked about it. What is he? He's the cupbearer for Artaxerxes. All right. So now he says, give me favor in the presence of this man. So what's he doing? He's taking his burden. He's aligning himself with God. And he is deciding now, who can help me with this burden? Somebody needs to help me. Who can do it? Artaxerxes, he's your man. And it says, I was cupbearer to the king. I think that's just, that line is so neat in there. It talks about all of this, and then it starts to, it's the transitional phrase to the rest of everything that happens. I was cupbearer to the king. You know what a cupbearer does? He'd like taste the wine or the food, whatever. And why? Because somebody might want to poison the king. You got the picture? I mean, you don't, you don't necessarily want to make application for a job like that, especially if the king isn't very popular, right? Because your life's on the line. But let me tell you something about cupbearers. They were highly respected by a king. It's somebody they really trusted. You see that? He was very important. In fact, he was so important to this king, I'll just give you a little foreshadow where the story goes, and we'll go next week a little bit more with this. He becomes the governor of all Judah. Judah is where Jerusalem is. So he moves from cupbearer to soon he's going to be a governor. We'll talk about that next week. I was cupbearer to the king. And so now four months have passed. How do I know that? Because it's in the month of Nisan, 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 Nusan. I don't know what syllable to put the emphasis on there. But anyways, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him. Now, how do I know it's four months later? Nisan is like around April, you know, March, April. And Kislev, when this all started, was uh, uh, November, December. So we're about four months later. So how long did it take him to go through this alignment and everything else? About four months. That's about how long. So it was pretty intense. This wasn't like, hey, yeah, tomorrow. I'm, you know, I'm going to pray today, and maybe tomorrow we're going to try something. So that speaks also to how you prepare yourself when God lays a burden on your heart. I mean, to really intensely prepare yourself. Does that make sense? It's very true, and this pattern is clearly here. So, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in the presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. So the king was pretty discerning. Hey, something's wrong with you. What is it? Come on, what's, what's bugging you? I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. So he butters him up a little bit. 
because he's afraid of how the king's going to react. Why should, I, why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Okay, that's a pretty good response. That's, that's good. That's better than off with your head or get me a platter. I want to put his head on it, right? He's, he's feeling a little bit encouraged right now. What is it you want, the king says. Then I prayed to the God of heaven. You get the picture of that? I, I mean, he's probably bowed down in front of the king. Wouldn't you think? I mean, he's pretty scared at this point. He says he was very afraid. And these are his words. So he prays to the God of heaven. So I could hear him. Dear God, Lord, help me. Please. I mean, that's what first service, I, I found myself doing exactly that this morning. I said, Lord, I don't know what I'm going to say today. I've got a lot of things prepared and I've thought about and prayed about. But I don't know. I don't know what it is. Please help me. So I can relate to Nehemiah right there. And you've been there, I'm sure. Were times you've had to say, dear God of heaven, I don't know what to do in this situation. This person is so hurting. What do I, what do I even say? Have you found yourself there? We all have. And I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king and the queen sitting beside me ask. And I, I learned something in looking at Persian history. Uh, it, it's it's not totally matriarchal, but women had a lot of authority, and the queen had a lot of authority in Persian history. Isn't that interesting? That's not necessarily true in that part of the world right now. But it was. And so the king was attentive to this. The queen was attentive to this. How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me. <laughs> so I set a time. Can you imagine how relieved he felt? I'm not losing my head. You know, but rather, I'm going to be able to step forth of my burden. We're about to wrap this up today, but let me just let me just tell you what happens here. Nehemiah not only got permit he asked for more permission. Hey, how about could I get some supplies? And so the the king gives him the key to to a forest, so to speak, or permission to cut down from a forest. Turns out that forest was probably, of trees, was probably about six miles south of the Jerusalem area. I used to think it was like they carted these things. They're four, they're four months by camel away from Babylon, back to Jerusalem. I'm picturing them hauling all this wood and everything, but they actually got the cedars and all of that sort of thing nearby. I think that was pretty neat. Just That's just a little cul-de-sac, a little extra information, and you don't have to pay any extra for it. But that's basically what happens in God's preparation. Oh, by the way, uh, the king sent some troops with him. Some troops. Isn't that neat? It's an awesome thing what happens here. Just awesome. Next week we're going to build on all of this. But here's, here's where I want to make a practical application for this body of believers and this body of Christ. Uh, any any current or ex-marines in the room 
Any Marines? Oh, we had a number of them first service. Anybody hate Marines? No. <laughs> okay, if you're Army or Navy, I don't, don't want to hear that. Um, the Marines had a term that they used in World War II when they would take an island. They would establish something on the beach of an island. You know what it was called? A beach. There you go. A beachhead. And do you know this? Anywhere that the Marines established a beachhead on an island, you know what happened? They never lost an island where they established and secured a beachhead. And the message I share with you that comes from Carrie, and it will keep sharing over these weeks as we prepare for him to come, is that this church is a beachhead. This church is established to reach and impact more and more people. Now look, everybody here in the room we care about, and everybody in the first service we care about, and you're important, and there needs to be investment in your life, and you need to take a burden and invest in other lives. But there is so much in the establishment of a beachhead that is about the next 100 people that come to Jesus Christ through this ministry, and about the 100 after that, and the 100 after that, and the hundreds that end up being sent out from this body. Oh, by the way, that is the real purpose of the church, by the way. Not to just be a receiving entity, but to become a sending entity. To establish a beachhead. What Nehemiah was looking to do with the rebuilding of the walls and the rebuilding of the uh, gates is to establish a beachhead. A place for the dwelling of God. Next week, here's where we're going to go with this. We're going to look at a couple different things. One, we're going to look at a theme of teamwork. And the teamwork is awesome. Back in uh, Nehemiah, what happens in the next few chapters, beginning in the third chapter. It is so incredible, and it's even funny. Yeah, you'll even laugh at some of the things that happen on the teamwork along the wall. But we're not going to only look at the funny stuff. We're going to look at how the usurper... Satan actually works, the tempter works, to try to pull people back from rebuilding the wall and, re, and, and rebuilding the gates. We're going to look at his specific methods and things he did over and over. Oh, by the way, how Nehemiah responded to that to win the battle for the rebuilding of the wall. And uh, so we're going to look at the rubble <laughs> of the wall and how it gets in the way. But we're going to look at the rebuilding of the wall, and we're going to look at the great victory that is achieved through that. We're doing that next week, and then uh, Steve Riley the following week is going to be sharing with us, and it's going to be centered around the time of communion on the first Sunday of the month. And he's uh, already building that particular message. So those are things coming the next couple of weeks. So go ahead and grab your neighbor or whatever and just say, hey, you're going somewhere today. It's a... Um, what do they call those things when you go around? It's a surprise. and you're, Anyways, you know what I'm talking about. Say, I'm taking you. It's a surprise. So bring them. We'll be building. We'll look at the rubble. We'll look how Satan works. But we're going to look at a great victory. And we're going to look at teamwork. Uh, worship team, if you'd start making your way, way up here, we're going to receive your offering. And uh, since I'm not the pastor week in and week out of the church, I can talk about offerings for just a minute. Um. And I, I think we'll do it in a very positive way. 
I learned something about giving. You know, I didn't always know it, but I learned something about giving. It's like God can give more. <laughs> you know, and I'm not talking just about money. I'm talking about everything from relationships and the way he blesses with that. And I know that some people, you look at giving and you say, well, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm really comfortable being a tipper. Um, and, and I get all of that as far as that goes. I, I've spent time in my life being a tipper. I, I just want to encourage you with this. Uh, God can multiply your gifts over and over again. And he does. And he's awesome at that. We have an incredible God. The ushers are going to be coming up. We're going to uh, have a time of worship. And then I'm just going to share very, very briefly at our close of time. And may God just uh, bless you through the great news we had today and his word. <laughs>